Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McInroy. This is Steve Walsh. Hello. <laughs> We're in Bermondsey today. We'll be taking a tour around the area. We've started our journey at Shad Thames by the river. You get a really good flavour of what Bermondsey was and is with Shad Thames. You can see a lot of the original warehouses that were lined along the river for the docks to be loaded into. Yeah, I think it's more a part of Bermondsey, isn't it, rather than the whole of Bermondsey. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. find as our journey goes on how things change across the area. Absolutely. And even change in Shad Thames itself. There was huge regeneration stroke gentrification in the 80s where a lot of the warehouses were converted or knocked down to make space for new terrible buildings a lot like in uh, Rotherhive but it is also very well conserved isn't it oh yeah relatively yeah you do get as I say a a flavour of what the place used to be like these old warehouses sort of tower over you as you walk through these narrow cobbled streets what um walkways that were once used to roll barrels between warehouses and now balconies in luxury flats but architecturally it's a fascinating place and even as you say like we were talking about earlier the the narrow pavements which would have been part of the design of just having as little space as possible between loading from carts into the warehouses it was you know just a, a space to differentiate between the street and the buildings rather than being used for pedestrians so in the 19th century, I suppose, 18th, 20th, what kind of things were in these warehouses? It would have been spices were a big part of it. Tea and coffee, fruit and vegetables from around the world. Yeah, just yeah, a lot of uh, food imports, mainly. And that's recorded in a lot of the street names around here. There's loads of references to particular products that would have been brought into uh, specific warehouses and areas. One of the most famous spots on Chad Thames is Jacob's Island. Historically uh, a marshy, horrible area. And the setting for Bill Sykes' house in Oliver Twist. Dickens, not the only literary legacy that the area can boast as well. R.F. Delderfield, have you ever heard of? I haven't. Name I'd heard of, and when it clicked up as someone who was born in Birmingham, I was like, oh great, R.F. Delderfield, definitely heard of this guy. And then looked at his bibliography, I was like, not really heard of any of these things. But one claim you can definitely make on his behalf is that he wrote a play called The Ball Boys, B-U-L-L, which is about, I think, his own experiences in the army. And it was a play about army life and a bit of a sort of farcical take on things, which was then adapted for the screen and called Carry On Sergeant. Mm. and became the first of the Carry On films, which weren't designed as a series. And you sort of realise with that, Carry On Sergeant would have been a line in a play about the army, in that Carry On Sergeant would have been a very regular... It's the, it's the, the English version of At Ease, essentially, where you just send the sergeant off to finish the order. And from that we get Carry On Cleopatra. Yeah. I think it's Carry On Doctor or Nurse next. But yeah, you, you, the, the, the origin of that famous farcical set of films came from a man from Bermondsey originally. The main attraction at Shad Thames now for tourists, I suppose, Steve, is the Design Museum, which will soon be gone. Uh, we won't dwell on it because we spoke about it at length in episode 41 which you can find on southlondonhardcore.com and on iTunes. 
another feature in Shad Thames that also sort of alludes to its less salubrious past is the River Neckinger, which is one of the tributaries that leads from the Thames into London itself, like the Fleet and uh, the Tyburn, there's a, a few of them, but the great thing about Neckinger is you can still see it, or at least remnants of it. We went up to where the river leads in, and, and there's a lovely little bridge, and you can sort of look up into South London, seeing the, where the river would have flowed. But you can't actually walk along the riverside because private property has encroached entirely along the riverside. Yeah, it seems to have been um, a battle to have, to reclaim the riverside for the people, but not completely, obviously. And interestingly, Neckinger apparently gets its name from the fact that pirates were hung there and... By their necks. Yeah, by the necks. And it became known as the place of the devil's necktie, which was a popular slang term for the hangman's noose. But this, this, I think the sad thing about the River Neckinger now is when you look at it, the pirates are one, haven't they? Hmm. We're now at 47 Bermondsey Street, home to the Stage magazine the trade magazine for theatre in Britain. Uh, it's been the home of the stage since 1978. The stage founded in 1880. Uh, it was originally the building a flag maker. They've got a really good name, haven't they? Oh, I didn't read it. But, you know, flag makers, you know, like... Uh, yeah, vexillologists. There you go. But that's a, that'd be someone who designs flags, so I don't know what the manufacturer's called. But listeners will be impressed that I know that. And I knew it before that night, I've said invisible, I said. <laughs> Between being the stage and being a flag makers, in 1968, it was taken over by Ian Stewart, who is his sort of, I don't say fifth Rolling Stone, because there's already been five at that point. <laughs> but yeah, he played on, you know, Time is on my side, Honky Tonk Women, Let It Bleed, Brown Sugar, Dead Flowers, Sweet Virginia, it's only rock and roll, loads of stuff. Led Zeppelin as well, Boogie with Stu, rock and roll, you know. Been a long time, it's a rock and roll. <laughs> Piano player. See, so yeah, in 1968, summer 1968, he takes over the space and uses the basement as a rehearsal space. Equipment storage, rehearsal, uh, he's got an eight-track recorder in there. It basically becomes the Rolling Stones rehearsal space, and other people refer to it as that. Summer of 69, Rod Stewart joins... Small faces there, they become the faces of the kind of first rehearsals there. And Rod Stewart says, uh, You walked in the place, and there'd be boxes of two inch tapes and quarter inch tapes on the shelves saying things like Honky Tonk Woman and Gimme Shelter on them. Likewise, 1971, someone says they come in and there's piles of tapes saying Sweep Like Angel, Tumbling Dice, and like all the Exile on Main Street stuff is you know hanging about in there. Not particularly nice place, apparently, though. Jeffro Toll. One of them describes it as a very dank, dirty place. Uh, this is on, like, a thick as a brick. There's an interview at the end of the CD. And uh, the guy's moaning that it takes him an hour. It says it's miles from anywhere, which is <laughs> bizarre. He's moaning it takes him an hour and a half to get here from Putney and his MG. But yeah, so uh, Jeff Roto rehearsed thick as a brick here, which is one of my favourite records of all time. Absolutely brilliant. Have you heard it? No, I've not, no. Ah, oh, it's great, Steve. It's the kind of folk prog. It's like a 40-minute song. So good. <laughs> and then uh, later on that year, Dave Gilmore, describing it as a dingy warehouse with a rehearsal room in it, Pink Floyd play Dance Out of the Moon in its, in its entirety there for the first time. You know, like, that's where they 
they'd done some rehearsals elsewhere, but that's where it all came together. Um, a lot of this has come from Richard Games' article on the stage website. You know, credit where it's due. But like a hugely significant, yeah, massive. If it was just the first, the place that Dark Side of the Moon was first played, put up a plaque in it. But and it's also it's interesting. It's one of those things where you go, there's a flag makers. Then it was the base of the stage, and there's a few years in between. You go, okay, well this will just be a bit of filler. The space in between. No, it was where the Rolling Stones sort of had their clubhouse for a bit. We've passed the Fashion and Textile Museum, saving it for a later episode where we can give you a full tour of the place. Don't want to use up all of South London, do we? <laughs> Too early. We can't um, bone through Bermondsey in one day, can we? No, we've got our next 150 episodes to think of. We're at, outside the White Cube Gallery, which is a spectacular building. I really like it architecturally. Uh, unfortunately, it's not open, and you would have thought they would have mentioned this on their website, but they haven't. <laughs> They've mentioned it on uh, a tiny notice visible from the window. So you literally have to not only get to the White Cube, go up to the door and look through the window to check if it's open to find out that it's not open. So I think we can only assume that it's bad inside. <laughs> no, have you ever been there? No, I've not actually. I've been to uh, this, well, obviously. A few white cubes. I've been to the one in Mason's Yard a few years back. Where bus is that? Uh, just off German Street. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I used to work at Fortnum and Mason. Oh, I thought I might have been there, actually. Yeah. So, uh, unfortunately, we've got nothing more for you, have we? It was opened in 2011. Yeah, yeah I mean, white cube generally the only opened person, by... The only people to blame here is, is the white cube themselves. Yeah, you can't... It's 2014, nearly 2015. The days of relying on uh, a notice in the window of the building itself being an adequate indicator of whether you're open or not is long gone. That's a shame, Steve, because I was going to tie this place and the last place we visited back to the Metropolitan Borough of Bermondsey's motto, Prosunt Gentibus Artes. I mean, that's not pronounced correctly, but arts profit the people, which is nice, isn't it? Yeah, it's funny, I read that for uh, while researching the episode... And I thought, well, that's odd. Because, like, you know, from my cursory knowledge of Bermondsey, I was like, I, with Bermondsey, I think of sort of trade and industry and commerce. I don't really think of art. And then sort of researching for the episode, you're like, oh, all right, they knew what they were doing. There's, uh, it's such a, a hotbed of creativity. Something yeah, that we'll refer to repeatedly throughout the episode. More to come. We're passing a couple of parks now. Leather Market Gardens and Tanner's Gardens. Where do they get their names from, Steve? <laughs> Glad you ask. One of the interesting things about any sort of dockside area is the fact that you get a lot of industry that springs up around it, which makes sense. You know, you've got access to materials, you've got access to moving materials and moving your stock once you've made your product. But also, obviously, with our riverside location, things like leather makers and, and tanning uh, industries that need to be near the river. Uh, they stink, they're filthy. There's a lot of waste product that needs to be got rid of as quickly. You just dump it in the river. Yeah, just chuck it in the river. That's the, the way to go. But Bermondsey can lay claim to a particularly significant leather makers, uh, Barrow and Gell, founded in 1750. They've relocated now to Peckham, apparently, so still South London. But um, they're the company that make ministerial boxes. You know, the... Um, sort of briefcase-style things that ministers carry papers around in. The most famous one being the one that the Chancellor presents on Budget Day. They hold it up. 
no idea what you're talking about. All okay. oh, right. On on budget day, the Chancellor will appear yeah, out yeah, of Eleven yeah. Downing and hold up what looks like a briefcase. But it's yeah. his ministerial and in box. There it is... says like fags have gone up twenty p. <laughs> Just to post it. Yeah. <laughs> but but beautifully presenting this wonderful uh, leather box. But they make um, yeah ministerial boxes, black boxes, red boxes for different purposes. Right. Um, and it's yeah, it's a, a Bermondsey company apparently now relocated to Peckham that has had the contract for that since 1750 apparently they're so select and exclusive they don't advertise their address oh right so they don't even have the opportunity to go and visit them doorstep them yeah we've arrived at Bermondsey Square which is a quite new complex like paved place that uh, we're in the Sainsbury's but it hosts every Friday Bermondsey Market Antiques, isn't it? Prestigious Antiques Market, or famous, as you say? Well, infamous, originally. Oh. Bermondsey Market used to famously open at four in the morning um, and run for most of the day because it ran under the rules of Market Ouvert. Have you ever heard about this? I did read about this. Yeah, yeah. fascinating, isn't it? I'd never heard about this before. Um, French for open market, obviously. And the rule was uh, you could sell anything at a market in daylight and you couldn't question its provenance. So it was basically a case of if you had self-solving goods and the market operated under Market Ouvert, uh, you could do that. So Bermondsey Market became notorious for its 4am opening where villains would just turn up at 4am and go, do you want to buy this? And now people turn up and go, can I buy this? And they just flip stolen goods. Sure that's already mine. <laughs> well, that was the thing. The idea of it was, it was, it was based around the historic idea that people didn't travel far from where they lived. So the idea was, on market day, if you had something stolen, you'd go to the market and you could claim it back. Right. So if it was there in daylight hours, you could, so they'd just open at four in the morning. So basically you had to be up and at the market for four in the morning on the off chance. So that was the day they took your stolen goods to the market and it was on you to, to claim it. I mean, even then, it's an awkward conversation then. Yeah. There's no receipts, is there? You're not sort of going... No, I've heard tales of people going to somewhere in Brick Lane where they sell like stolen the bikes. cycle parts. Yeah, no, yeah. everyone knows. Like, whole bikes, yeah. People, any time I know anyone's had a bike needs so on Facebook, someone... hit someone over the head and take you, your bike you, back. You basically go up with a couple of your mates and go, that's actually my bike. Has anyone ever taken you up there? No. <laughs> it would be like, uh, you know, when David Beckham got the, uh, the frets on his family... And he right. got Ryan Giggs and the Neville Rubs driving with baseball bats. Yeah, you know, like, ah, I've never heard that. Yeah, amazing. it was like when they were like the kids. Raking busy. <laughs> it? <laughs> no, it was the, it was the kids of '92. So he got these calls. So he, he rang his mates and his mates. Actually, I think it was like Nicky Butt, Ryan Giggs, and the Neville Brothers, and they just sat in David Beckham's house with baseball bats all night, waiting for someone to come and try and break in. At least get Keith Gillespie. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in a particularly pungent Sainsbury's, as you said, Steve. It's the smell. I don't know what it is, but. But the square now, uh, it's got a great cinema there, Shortwave, uh, run by our pal Rob Ray, who uh, appeared on our Elephist episode, which he also runs. Historically, the site of Bermondsey Abbey. They've got a blue plaque up for that, but no evidence of it now. Some 17th century houses left. So it's very, very nice, isn't it? But oh, yeah. Kind of spoiled by a horrendous piece of public art in the middle. Yeah. A l- luminous green. Yeah, just... And the colour's not even the worst thing about it. We're on Leroy Street now, just by the Old Kent Road, outside Miloco Studio, Studios, formerly Orinoco Studios. The engine room is here. I mean, if you go to our Instagram page at SLHC or Facebook.com slash Southland Hardcore, 
you'll see a picture of the elaborate buzzer system. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of options for recording studios in one place. Yeah, like over here, you can just go directly into one place. Just go straight into the engine room. I'm not going to go into reception. They don't need to know I'm here. I'm just going straight in. What if someone's in already? What if the sugar cubes are reformed? Quite a prestigious studio, really, isn't it? Yeah, better known for its mix room than as a recording studio, although some significant people have recorded there. Probably the most, not the most famous, but the one that ties in most of the, the place as a recording studio uh, is Enya, who recorded mm. a lot of albums there, including the song Orinoco Flow, which yeah. doesn't refer to the river, refers to the studio it was recorded in, which yeah, seems I'm, odd. I, I didn't... Both, uh, maybe, in it? Both. Well, I, I always thought it was called Away. Sail away, sail away. So people don't know it. They still won't. So yeah, that was recorded here, and the song is named after this place. Incredible. That was huge, I imagine, Steve, wasn't it? I mean, that was massive, massive, like global as well. Well, the thing is, it came out when I was five, so I didn't hear it at the time. It was still massive when I, you know, (laughs) in the early nineties, wasn't it? Mid nineties. Yeah. Uh, The Chemical Brothers recorded a load of stuff here, but we've got Chemical Brothers coming up on a playlist very soon. So we won't sort of blow our Chemical Brothers load at the moment. But other acts that have made use of the facilities, mostly as they, in terms of using it as a, a mixing spot, um, Ash, Oasis, Coldplay, David Holmes, Let's Get Killed, partly recorded here and mixed here. One of my favourite albums ever. It's breeze over what's the song when glory, Steve, I don't know, <laughs> to get to some obscure <laughs> Irish. <laughs> you stumbled across another recording spot that looked incredible on first glance didn't it yeah there was a place called terminal studios which was uh two years ago three years ago was knocked down i think it's now Screwfix direct but it's been uh, rebuilt just around the corner not where we are now further along in bermondsey uh terminal studios and actually orinoco if you go to their website uh, Miloco, I should say. They refer to it as a friend of Miloco and they sort of suggest you can go there. So it's like a rehearsal practice space, essentially, but with massive recording facilities. It's not 47 Bermondsey Street by any stretch of the imagination. Although they do try and stretch their imagination, don't they? Yeah, if you go to their website and have a look at the list of acts that have played there. Well, they're actually, and this is where they've been quite canny, they've got a list of clients. Right. Which, uh, at first glance, you go, oh, right, every significant person in British music in the last 30 years recorded here at some point. And Dinosaur Jr. And Coolio. <laughs> and Burt Bacharach. But no, exactly, what does client mean? And you find that with a lot of these places, if you go to... A bit like with the Save the Coronet campaign, you know, it's the whole thing about Charlie Chaplin uh, performed here. And there's no evidence for that. You know, I'm not saying he, he obviously is a possibility he did perform there, but like, he, you're constantly doing it. And with this show, as much as kind of, it's not exactly, we're not doing a research paper and like <laughs> your myth bunking is, you know, <laughs> is your whole deal, Steve. But at the same time, you want to kind of corroborate these things. Absolutely. So we, there's no point going through a list of women, there's no great evidence for it. No. And like you say, Steve, some very dubious. Well, uh, no, as I say, I think the claims are correct. What, what they've done is they've listed a lot of music acts as clients, but as well as being recording facilities and rehearsal facilities, they also do backline and equipment hire. So basically, if Mumford and Son are playing the Brixton Academy and they suddenly need an extra mic or a lead, and people know there's a, a place close by that can definitely get the thing to them, then Mumford and Son are legitimately a client of terminal studios but they're just not there laying down the track are they also some of the spelling as well 
I say some of the spelling, much of the, much of the acts are spelt wrong. Manfred Mann. I, Manfred Mann one in, and I was like, that's odd. Uh, but that was, I think it was uh, Candy Statton was the first one that I spotted, where they've gone for a double T. Like, you can understand leaving things out, but adding things. Uh, Dizzy Rascal with a Y rather than two E's. I did ask you at one point if it's possible that they're the leading recording facility for tribute acts. You know, it's just like very carefully misspelt to avoid any legal complications. Going through the list, the first name that jumped off the page to me was Nirvana. Um, one of my favourite bands as a teen. And also the fact that Kurt Cobain died, obviously, sort of just feeds into your kind of fervour for sort of any link to them. That was the one act I could find some real evidence for. I mean, Nirvana in 1992 did rehearse there. They were in England uh, for whatever reason on tour, I imagine. And they went and rehearsed there. And I mean, the place is knocked down now, but I don't know. I, despite kind of mocking them for their kind of uh, loose connections to these things, I thought that was quite, uh, quite exciting. Loose, loose connections to spelling. <laughs> Any other musical links to Bermondsey, Steve? Yeah, a couple of significant rock and roll innovators. Tommy Steele who had a number one hit with Singing the Blues in 1957, goes on to have a tremendous career in in variety rather than the music. He's not a, a chart sensation, it's more stage, film, but just a, a general personality goes on to great success. Again, he'll be on a playlist very soon, I'm not looking at his career but more. One person that won't be on a playlist, Steve. Wee Willie Harris, who leaves his job at Peak Freens a local uh, baking facility, to become a rock and roll performer and arguably become Britain's first rock and roll performer. He's described on his debut as Britain's wild man of rock and roll. By who, Steve? And he's accused of promoting teenage decadence. Yes, yeah, a remarkable performer, not talented in any way really you'd argue like not a great singer makes his name performing at the two eyes coffee bar in soho and records a song called rocking at the two eyes in 1957 you know same sort of time as tommy Steele, but nothing like the same sort of success as a a limited performer but very game went round with his hair dyed green which doesn't really help when you're doing like you know tv performances in black and white on youtube there's a few clips of him, uh, one from the late 50s, where he's in Portugal appearing on a TV show, uh, and he comes out dressed as a caveman, wearing like a loincloth. But again, it's in black and white, so you don't know how wild he's supposed to look. There's also footage from him by, uh, in 1975 performing at the Wheel Tappers, which was Bernard Manning's club in Manchester. So Bernard Manning introduces him, and this middle-aged man, because it's 1975 now, comes out in like a giant clown wig and a massive bow tie. He just looks like a clown and starts singing. But there's also footage of him from quite recently doing like Jailhouse Rock as an elderly man. So he's like, he's never really given up on his rock and roll dream. But Despite. Yeah, he's, he's gone from, you know, the wild man of uh, rock and roll to a cabaret act in, in it looks like record time. Has a bit of a revival in the 70s. Uh, gets name-checked by Ian Jury and reasons to be cheerful free. Turns up in a video for the Stonk, uh, the Hail and Pace Comet Relief song, uh, right. later in the 90s. Another claim to fame, and again dubious, possibly asserted by himself, but apparently uh, 
John Lennon and Paul McCartney queued up for his autograph outside a show in Liverpool in 1958. Possible, isn't it? Apparently. Rock and roll fans. We're in Bermondsey Spa Gardens, just outside the old Bermondsey Town Hall, which is now apartments. Uh, very fancy building, isn't it? Columns, etc. I think that's the old library over there that is now a uh, major Buddhist centre. Architecturally very impressive, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, lovely. Historically, this was the location of Thomas Key's Bermondsey Spa Pleasure Gardens, based on the nearby Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. Keyes was a, an artist. Must have been successful, because like, he's funded... I don't know, I did sort of wonder where the money came from. He's an artist, but he sort of opens up pleasure gardens, so I'm assuming he had money behind him. The pleasure gardens kept a permanent uh, display of his own artwork, which, you know, mm. fair enough, isn't it? Fair enough. They're your pleasure gardens. He also designed um, a show based around the Siege of Gibraltar that was a blend of performance, music and fireworks that he designed himself. We've just seen Justin Lee Collins walking down the street. There's this... a great moment where you nudged me and you said Justin Lee Collins, laughing. Like, does he like Justin Lee Collins? And then you're like, oh, it is Justin Lee Collins. Just walking down the street as if he doesn't force women to sleep facing him. <laughs> like, some, like the lunatic that he is. Like he's not going through their DVD collection and taking out the Tom Cruise things because uh, they think that he's more attractive than Justin Lee Collins. I mean, we all think he's more attractive than Justin Lee Collins. I'm not destroying uh, my copies of Jerry Maguire on that basis. Just so bizarre to see him out. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> We've come to the end of Spa Road now, and we're at the location of what was Spa Road Station, London's first terminus. There are a couple of plaques up, kind of a quite formal red one, tan, you might say, <laughs> and another one which we can't actually find, which is with the original frontage of the station. They did it up a couple of years ago, and. Um, it's got like a plaque with an illustration of railway arches which looks very nice if we could find it the problem is all the arches have been transformed into commercial space isn't it it's like mm. storage but and delivery did, and but it's only recently they did this so they're around here somewhere we did a whole episode on the history of railways in South London including some uh, incredible innovations have a look at our uh, episode guide southlondonhardcore.com and uh, have a listen it's a good one other related episodes um if you want more from the area. Rov Rive, episode 105, Surrey Docks, episode 11, The Borough, episode 8, Elephant and Castle, episode 2, Woolworth, episode 76, and Councillor Graham Neal, who was the councillor for South Bermondsey, or a councillor for South Bermondsey, episode 101. So all on tuffhandhardcore.com. We are outside Harris Academy, Bermondsey. 200 years ago on this site was the factory of uh, Donkin, Hall and Gamble, Brian Donkin. Paul put in the money and Gamble was uh, like the floor manager by the sound of it. It was the first factory to produce tin goods, I believe, in the world. Yeah, I think so. So that was 1811. By 1813, the Duke of Wellington and the Queen uh, eating corned beef was getting sent out <laughs> to the army. They got one of his tins in the Science Museum. But, you know, to put it in context, during the Seven Years' War, where was that, Steve? That was with France, wasn't it? Was it? I think so. Apparently more than half of the British seamen died of malnutrition. So, you know, they needed ways to preserve food. So hugely important. Apparently Donkin doesn't really get his dues in the kind of history of this kind of thing. Well, it's a bit dubious, isn't it? Because 
he didn't he purchased the patent for tinning the food from someone else but was also an engineer himself and would have oh, worked was, towards yeah improving oh, the design and time, and you time. know taking it to uh, the public but as you say the big contract to get of course is the army and navy one particularly the navy one at this point you know storing food on a ship is virtually impossible. There's various methods that are tried. Well, they were just eating crackers and salt, salted meat, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. For long periods, and people just died of scurvy. Was the big one that attacked the, the sailors. It's a weird plaque, isn't it? It's a twelve-part tiled plaque. It's great to see it there. But you I'm can't always, really uh, read it properly. Well, I've got bad eyesight anyway. But it's like it's not particularly obvious what it is. Hard to know, man. I could no? read it fine. Oh, okay. I mean, Sorry, just me. I couldn't read it on Google Street View. I was dubious <laughs> about whether it was even the right thing, but I'm pleased to see that it is. What? Well, how long was the factory here for? I know it's, uh, the well, company's been bought out by Cross and Blackwell. Yeah, now, Cross and Blackwell, and now it's yes folded into it. But yeah, 1821, he knocked it on the head. Right. I mean, he was a very like he was an engineer essentially. He weren't sort of, by the sound of it, that interested in making a load of money off tin food. He painted the first steel pen. You know, as an alternative to the quill. Yeah. And he only lived around the corner in Charlotte Place. And also, he was a pioneer in the in paper making. The are you aware of the Fordrinier machine? Yeah, it was a, a paper making machine rather than physically making paper by hand, which yeah. was the default method at the time. And by the sound of it, he basically made it. Uh, the the uh, Fordrinier brothers, French, I believe hence the pronunciation were put the money in and they were kind of initial you know started it off but it was kind of his work right, right. and he doesn't sort of get much credit for that speaking of paper and pen Steve another print innovator was Robert Harold uh, another Bermondsey resident he started a printing company in 1807 but by 1809 jacked that in to, to move into printing manufacturing more than anything else his major innovation is the development of rollers for printing presses rather than dabbers. So transferring the ink onto the blocks of type itself was traditionally done by hand by dabbers with what were called ink balls, which were essentially rags on sticks that they would dip into ink and then apply to the thing. But his thing was to build a machine, well, physically apply it by roller, which distributes it more evenly and quickly, but then to develop machines that involved rolling ink onto the print as part of the development, which is, you know, a huge innovation in terms of making print accessible and allowing it to be produced en masse. And is that not still the kind of principles we still operate yeah, from? Yeah, that's how printers work now, because of this guy going, uh, there's got to be a better way than uh, dabbing ink onto individual blocks with a big uh, rag. And there was. He's from around there. Bermondsey, yeah, born in Bermondsey. We're on a heavily vibrating bus, aren't we? <laughs> the 381. We're going to the Pump House Museum to check out the Peak Freens exhibition. More on that in a moment. We've just been to the Blue. We had a went to a greasy spoon. You know, nice. greasy spoon, nice. wasn't it? It has a yeah, decent yeah. cheeseburger and chips. Yeah, the, the Blue is um, the, My main, first visit to the, blue. the main shopping drag uh, in Bermondsey. Yeah, it's a funny one, the Blue, because... I remember I went through it on the bus once as a kid. I went to, I say kid, I was probably 13. I was going to this kid's house, coming home from school with this kid. It's on the, probably the P12 to buy a guitar amplifier off him. For, uh, he said it was going to be £5 and he bumped it up to £8, but, you know, it was fine. Is it Manfred Mack? 
And it just felt like a world away. Three, eight, one. And it wasn't until I had... Waterloo. It wasn't until I had my first job after I left school, which was on Grange Road, which we've just gone past, in a food warehouse. Uh, hard work, man. Always. As much as, like, I've done jobs that are kind of mentally exhausting, I'm so pleased to not have a job that's physically exhausting. <laughs> it was a real kind of life lesson, man. A few months working there, carrying around tins of, of uh, fried onions and stuff jars of uh, pickles or whatever and you didn't even know about the local legacy at that point you didn't have that to sort of comfort you as you're dragging them around yeah I had no idea no idea ignorant so I went to the blue for lunch a few times then it all it just it felt like a world away like it's very very similar to Wharf Road in that it just has not really improved there's no sign of a Starbucks but the way you try and improve I, I looked it up last night Steve it was 0.9 miles away from my house <laughs> do you know what I mean like yeah, oh, yeah. I was I don't know, it just feels a bit cut off, doesn't it, Bermondsey, in some ways? I, I've never been to the Blue before, would never have gone anywhere close to it as a kid in terms of shopping. Like, growing up in Camberwell, it was Peckham one way or the Wharf Road the other way. Those were the places you went to, apart from Camberwell Green itself, of course. The idea of going up to the Blue, what, also it is a thing of, like you say, what's there that isn't anywhere else? Do you know what I mean? You don't need to go there if you live where we live, that's the thing, isn't it? What is there? Blue Anchor Library? Um... There's some market stalls there. Jake Goody's mum famously uh, That's right. had yeah, a market yeah. stall there. It might be a lot of Woolwich as well. Mm, I don't know, man. I think Woolwich has got a lot more going Oh, yeah, it's bigger. Yeah. But just like, particularly it's got like a the space where we went square. to a cafe there and that space we were in. And the space we were in there seems. Go for the space we were in. The space we were in the cafe in, in Woolwich and the space we were in the cafe there. See, I don't know, just very similar. Shapes and feels to them. As we're veering off into Rotherhithe, maybe we'll talk about a place we won't stop at Dickens Estate. If not, uh, is there a big Dickens link? When all the houses were Nic- Nicholas Nickleby House and. Yeah, that's the thing, like Dickens in Bankside and Bermondsey and Borough for sure, but I never think of him in Bermondsey, in that, in that part of Bermondsey. Dickens Estate has got one, well, at least one, famous resident, former resident, Michael Barrymore grew up there. Poor, you know, alcoholic parents, one or one or the other. Went on to start life as a blue coat or a red coat, working at holiday camp. And finds way on television. I mean Strike It Lucky was it was appointment TV. It's the reason you had a telly at this point, you know. It was yeah, tremendous uh, viewing. You think about the ways in which the world's changed and appointment television is is one of the, the biggest things in it. We've lost that. We have, and don't miss it. <laughs> no, but like it's just everybody watching the same thing. Millions and millions of people watching light entertainment, and then, like you say, I don't miss it either. The game show itself, not a huge deal, but just uh, him chatting to people at the start of the show. You know, it was like it felt like seventeen minutes of a half-hour show. It was just him. Just uh, ripping people and having a laugh and just dancing with old women. Brilliant. Well, this is very disappointing. We've come to the Pump House Museum only to find that it's closed down. There's a notice on the door, some kind of court order relating to what looks like squatters. That's from July this year. I've just been on 
the internet having a look. I mean, their website doesn't work, which did alarm me. <laughs> but there's no when you go on the website, it's one of those ones that redirects you to some sort of adverts, basically. No, no indication that it had closed down. And if you go on Twitter and do a search for Pump House, it just allowed the links to campaign to save Pump House, you know, <laughs> which uh, we can now see was doomed. So where the Peak Friends exhibition has gone, I don't know, because they did get a 33 grand grant for it some years ago. So it's a lot of biscuits. Yeah, I'm not going to let this one lie, Steve. I want to have a look. I want to see the stuff. Yeah, I'm Where disappointed did they... to be talking about it without. Should we ask that security guard, Ben? <laughs> um, I don't want to get the species of bird wrong for uh, <laughs> Paul Ansorge as a go at me. This time you're a turkey. I it? think it's a duck. They're all turkeys. Quacking. That's what I'm going to go with. For. <laughs> yeah, we're at the Lavender Pond Local Nature Reserve, and. You know, was it a wasted trip, Steve? No, definitely not. I've never seen... I've never thrown sticks at a frozen pond before. So there is that. The noise it makes. Brilliant. So Peak Freed & Co. Established in 1857 at Dockhead by James Peak and George Hender Freen. Uh, they had a factory on Clements Road from 1866, which we didn't stop at because we were going to this museum <laughs> the thing is if we stopped if we went there now there's no evidence of there being a no. they were there in Bermondsey uh, for 130 years till 1989 Bermondsey known as Biscuit Town do you think that's accurate I think it's uh, it's I've a nice, never nice idea isn't it? it's <laughs> yeah. a nice idea so you get a lot of stuff on when you talk to people about the show like, oh have you ever done anything about the old uh, Sarsons Vinegar Factory in Bermondsey. <laughs> no, no, we haven't. No. Have you ever done anything about the breweries around now? This kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, we, we breezed over the tanner, tanners, but what I like, Steve, is you found someone who does something significant. And the thing is, with Peak Freens, I thought, yeah, there was a biscuit factory. I didn't realise until looking into it how significant it was. Yeah, huge, isn't it? If I can just dive straight in, Steve, to Go the significant it. mentions... Two of the staples of the biscuit tin, really. And one, one that's in the top three, I reckon. We'll come on to that. Let's say what they are. In 1861, they introduced the Garibaldi. Squashed flies, we used to call it, <laughs> right? And I was shocked to read that that is like the kind of official nickname, if you like. Yeah, it's yeah. It's quite common, didn't realise that. You thought you were the big uh, biscuit nickname innovator. That's what I thought, man. But bought Dan's from a bump, Flies Graveyard, you? also known as. <laughs> Yeah, one of their biscuitiers. Is that a word? It is now. Jonathan Carr. He was present when Giuseppe Garibaldi, one of the leaders of the struggle to unify Italy, he was present when he visited Southfields in 1854, and that's where the name comes from. Just named it after the guy. And in 1910, they invented the bourbon. You know, everyone makes bourbons now. All the biscuits are made. Everyone's got a digestive. Every manufacturer's got a bourbon. But they introduced the bourbon. Incredible claim. The staple of any tea time selection. Yeah, it never gets the press. Custard creams get it, but definitely better. I prefer a custard cream. Oh, come on, Steve. Turn them back on South the London. The absolute state of you. <laughs> Off mic, you were saying that you put bourbon in your top three, but if your top three includes a custard cream, I don't think anyone's well, no, interested in what top, the third one is. Top three in terms of a tea time selection. Okay, so what we're saying, digestive. So I can't have a hobnob or no, a no, you can't have finger. No, 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 exactly, yeah. What are the options then? Digestive, rich tea, nice maybe? Yeah, Jamie Dodger. Jamie Dodger. That's a controversial, but I'll let you have Is it? it? No, in a tea time selection. Is that an official 
It's my bourbon custard um, cream. Looking at the two of us, who's next one on biscuits? And what about do you get that kind of thing that looks like a bourbon but it's kind of a custard cream? Albino bourbon. Yeah, no, don't, they're not standards. No. You you can get those. Okay, so out of those, pink I'd wafer, say pink wafer, pink wafer if you want. Yeah, yeah. Chocolate digestive. Uh, I'll say yes. I'll right, allow well, it. And that goes number one. Bourbon right. number two for me. I'll go Jamie Dodger one, custard cream two, bourbon three. You can have all the Jamie Dodger, Steve. Yes. You can have them all. I win. What a claim, though. I mean... Well, uh, a, remarkable. A remarkable. couple of... A, alongside the tinned foods thing. Yeah. I mean, Bermondsey really on the map. Just feeding the empire. Is that a nickname for your stomach, Steve? <laughs> My empire's grown. <laughs> they also made Queen Elizabeth II's wedding cake. And I think that would have been on display in the museum. So it's disappointing not to be able to see that, because I imagine that's spectacular. It's probably rotten now, isn't it? And although the brand packed up in 1989, it's still going in Pakistan and Canada. So if anyone's popping on holiday to either of those places, if we, we would appreciate if you could bring us back some peak cream Bourbons or Gary Baldies. Preferably a Bourbon, but I'll take either. Do you like a Gary Baldy? I'll have a tea time selection, and I'll just, I'll just go nuts on that, innit? We've stopped now at Culling Road, outside F.A. Albin. Prestigious South London funeral home. They did my nan's funeral, for example. Constantly in the newspaper. <laughs> now they are, they're always advertising, it was like, F. Alvin wishes you a happy new year. Or, you know, you know what I mean? They're always get, keeping their fate. Is it Barry, the guy who runs it? See, the thing is, I've like, not watched... He did my nan's funeral, like, and maybe my uncle as well, I can't remember. Um, but he's just the same guy as every time. Do you know what I mean? You, and he was on, they did a TV show. What was that yeah, called? Don't Drop the Coffin. On a few series of it. Yeah, I didn't watch it. But no, I've not so. watched it. But I didn't realise it was a South London uh, funeral directors. Well, it's all, all their kind of self-publicity has paid off, I think, because they were recently awarded a blue plaque, if I if I got my information right, from Suffolk Council. Of all the boroughs in London, possibly the most active when it comes to blue plaques. We've talked about how cut, budget cuts have led to a lack of plaques, but we've already been to two places today where there were two plaques. <laughs> you know, like that uh, Spa Road station, there's two plaques. Not Neither of them are blue, but there are two plaques. And likewise, on the pump house in Rotherham, there are two plaques there. Um, the negative side to all this, though, is that you end up just giving them out to everyone. Like, you run out of places to give to, to award plaques to. You look in the Suffolk News and it's like, right, this year's nominations for plaques. And it's like 10 places that have just been there a long time. Yeah, yeah. It's not like the bourbon was not invented there. Tinned, <laughs> there's no tin food uh, factory there, you know, the first ever. It's all like, ah, this house has been there for 70 years. Albin's like 200 years in that spot. It's a decent amount of time, isn't it? Well, I mean, that's what the people, the people of Suffolk are with you, Steve. <laughs> I mean, I'd rather see, you know, Nirvana spent the afternoon playing some guitar, yeah? Whack a blue plaque up for that <laughs> where the terminal was on Screwfix. <laughs> I don't know if it's unfortunate or very fortunate that they're on Culling Road. It seems uh, appropriate, isn't it? I had a look at the website as well. Uh, I'm sure they're really good film directors. I'm not too sure about them in terms of uh, their geography. There's a bit on the website where they're like... We've done funerals all over the place. Wales, Scotland, Ireland, even overseas. <laughs> Come on, uh... guys. Come on, guys. No one likes us. No one likes us. No one likes us. We don't care. We are Millwall. So for Millwall. We are Millwall. From the end. Our journey 
ends in South Bermondsey at the New Den, the home of Millwall Football Club. They've been there since 1993, founded in 1885, previously at the Den on Coldblow Lane, which is even further south. Not a match day, leaning up against the side of the stadium. I find football stadiums on non-match days, I don't know, just strange places, man. Just this, just teeming with people, you know, on a match day. I mean, I don't know what the tendencies at Millwall are. 15,000 or something at the moment, 18,000. More than 40, isn't it? More than 40. (laughs) (laughs) But just completely empty and a few people sort of mechanics across the road working on cars. The club shop's open. Had a quick look around there. So, again, always interesting to just get a little insight into what other clubs are doing. Some sort of pink Millwall headphones with that great old badge they had. Not the... It's... I guess it would have been... It's like a 70s, 80s, 90s badge where it's a kind of ferocious lion on two legs. Now they're back to the two little lions on the side and it's a bit more heraldry. Heraldry. Heraldic. Heraldic. Whereas that was just fierce, man. Like the old Chelsea (laughs) badge. A couple of fierce football clubs, if you like. But, you know, the old Chelsea badge, it said CFC and there was just that red lion on it and they kind of went down to some lion doing a pose... Keep it fierce. So Millwall get their name from the other side of the river, but they've always been based on this side of the river. Is that the case? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, docks, aren't they? Millwall docks of the other side of the river. And um, did you ever see the film ID, football hooligan film I did, from yeah. the early 90s? Yeah. Where is the line? Is it here? Is that the line, line from the film? ID. From ID, yeah. yeah, I only ever saw bits of it. Um, but that they were called Shadwell FC right, in, in right. the film. But and that is closer to... A, you know where Millwall is than, than here. Millwall probably warrants an episode in itself. Millwall Football Club, which uh, we'll get round to at some point. Will we still? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, as a kid, all my mates supported Millwall. That's not accurate, but you know what I mean. Yeah, they yeah. were the most supported club in my. Loads of my, my uncles supported Millwall. Yeah, right. In uh, my primary school, they supported Millwall. All the people I went to church were supported Millwall, and as a result, I ended up going to a couple of games. I went to see Tottenham under-18s against middle under-18s at the old then and that's two or three games there but I remember there was that one corner of the stadium where there was just a guy a couple of people and someone just walking their dog just watching a game <laughs> from up there you know this is pre pre-1992 uh, massive revamps of English stadiums I went to an FA Youth Cup final at the new den Millwall versus Liverpool where um a young Mark Kennedy for Millwall scored an incredible volley and then went to Liverpool yeah he did didn't he yeah I think no one likes us we don't care is the greatest slogan in football yeah I, I can't, nothing comes close to no, it you'll no. never walk alone it's alright yeah no one likes us more we than don't a care. club well <laughs> and Steve as well let him come yeah Strong, strong, let them come, let them come, let them come, let them all come down to the den, let them come, let them come, let them come, let them all come down to the den.